This is Chris Martin, and me and my buddy Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. Kevin O'Everything, host an NBA podcast called The Mismatch. They call it The Mismatch because I'm awesome and Kevin is a gigantic nerd. No, no, that's not why at all, Chris. They call it The Mismatch because I have a brain and you're a loudmouth bozo. Good grief. (laughs) Anyway, listen to our amazing NBA podcast, The Mismatch. Or don't. We really don't care. We're probably going to win a million awards either way. <laughs> Chris, we do care. So don't say that. Please subscribe and listen to The Mismatch only on Spotify. Did you really call me a bozo? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to the Press Box. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. We got what the TV networks would call a regional doubleheader today. First up, Nor Princiati writer for TheRinger.com, host of The Ringer NFL Show, is going to join us on a number of NFL playoff topics, including the strange courtship of TV announcer slash coach Jeff Saturday in Indianapolis, whether the media made Dan Snyder sell the commanders, her thoughts on DeMar Hamlin three weeks after he went to cardiac arrest on the field in Cincinnati, and finally the guy she used to cover for the Boston Globe, Tom Brady. Is he going to be an announcer next year? Then Jason Gay, Wall Street Journal columnist, will join us to talk about Billy Packer, a legendary CBS college basketball announcer who died on Thursday night. An appreciation of Billy, the guy who taught a generation to say the words Duke University. All right, let's start with Nora. All right, Nora, I got some media-ish, media-adjacent NFL playoff topics I want to get your take on. Oh, good. Number one, are you as fascinated as I am about what's going on with Indianapolis Colts owner Jim (laughs) Ursay and his interim coach, Jeff Saturday? I don't remember who it was. Oh, my gosh. We're like 30 seconds in here, and I'm already failing to properly credit someone. I think it might have been Charles McDonald, who's an excellent NFL reporter, but he tweeted like back when the the um, Jeff Saturday thing was going down for the first time. He tweeted something like, I've got a party with Jim Ursay just once. And like, I think about that once a day, right? Like if we've learned anything this entire season, it's just like, oh man, what goes on in that guy's head is fascinating. Uh, yes, I am particularly fascinated with just playing out scenes in my head about what the the interviews look like because he's done two. He's and done two. I just wonder, like, so, so Jeff, let's talk about that Vikings game. What what went wrong there? Like, how do you, how do you do it? How do you talk about it? How do you say like, so Jeff, remember at the beginning of this, you said, you know, I'll give it a go. And if I suck at it and I lose eight games, then I'll say, God bless you. Thank you so much. I've, I've had my time and I'm done. Like, are we rethinking that? Like, what do we think? change in philosophy like what has happened here <laughs> but they are like maybe that's that's overcomplicating it because fundamentally these guys are drinking buddies so mm-hmm. they're probably just hanging out and it's that, that's what's going on here 
it's got to be one of the weirder relationships. So they're drinking buddies. Saturday's a former Colts star. Saturday is also a former ESPN announcer. And Ursay says, please leave ESPN with basically no coaching experience, high school coaching experience. High school, yeah. Come coach my NFL team. As you say, Saturday says, hey, I might suck at this. And then <laughs> we got some evidence down the stretch. Big blown lead against the Vikings. They just got killed by the Cowboys in that fourth quarter where they gave up oh, whatever it was, 30 points. Yep. Um, he has, Jim Ursay is conducting a search, but he hasn't interviewed anybody except for Saturday, who he's interviewed twice. They just like hanging out. By the way, like it's really easy to make fun of Jeff Saturday in this situation because he's in a very strange situation. He didn't ask for this. Now, I guess that gets a little bit fuzzier once like at the beginning he goes, if I'm terrible at this and the results are terrible, I'll be gone after eight games. And like now, maybe not. But he didn't ask to be put in this position. This is like Jim Ursay's brainchild and, and that's what happened. But there's just a lot of it's 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 ripe for jokes. If nothing else comes of this that's positive, it is ripe for jokes. That's all. That's all I got. Absolutely. I find this funny because would you say that 100 percent of NFL Twitter and sports Twitter is against Ursay hiring Saturday full time? Yes. It's like Taylor Swift is the only entity that can unite Republicans and Democrats in Congress. Jim Ursay is the, the um, and Jeff Saturday are the only. <laughs> co-entities that can unite just like every faction of, of online sports media. I believe there's a petition in Indianapolis uh, that has been launched with text, including the phrase that Colts fans will revolt if Saturday is made the permanent head coach. I don't know what that looks like. Yeah. The online <laughs> petition feels very Obama administration. Yeah, it is a bit of a throwback. It's cute. We haven't back. done that in a while. I love it's it's people get fired up. It's good to see. I don't pretend us sports writers have any real power, but it does feel fairly rare when an NFL team does something that a hundred percent of people disapprove of. Is that is that right? Yeah, definitely. Particularly in this case, because one. I don't know Jeff Saturday at all. I've never met him. I've never talked to him. My sense from people who do know him, who worked with him at ESPN is that people love him. And may, you know, maybe that explains some of this, but people really like that guy. They like being around him. They think he's cool. They think he's a good dude. They think he knows ball. Plus he's kind of one of us, right? Like, yes, he played and he got all those accolades and he's in the ring of honor and blah, 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 blah. But he's kind of, you know, one of us, one of us. And everyone is still turned on him. This should mean something. This should mm -hmm. just should be some form of evidence. It just feels like if, it's like if the Broncos had brought back Nathaniel Hackett. I mean, that and even maybe there was a 5%, 10% that said, you know what? It's not all his fault. Like that would have been a I'm going against the grain moment. Yeah. But, but even that is like, it's so easy to argue for the status quo, even when the status quo is insane, right? That like you could almost... Well, they already paid him. They don't want to turn over after a year or whatever. When the Jeff Saturday thing happened, it was, you know, Ursay, he'd just done, it was like right after the owner's meetings where he goes off against Dan Snyder and everyone's like, Jim Ursay, like, and, and he gets this sort of hero treatment. And then all of a sudden it's just like, oh, this guy's just crazy, right? Like this yeah. guy's just like going out on limbs. And, <laughs> and I don't mean to, to devalue the statement that he made and the positive impact of an owner finally saying something on the record about Dan Snyder, because that was cool and that was helpful and that was legit. But it felt so just wild that I don't think that we've adopted the justify the status quo brain that happens all the time in this case, which is why the Broncos had to fire Nathaniel Hackett. If that hadn't happened, that would have been bananas. But I almost think it would have been, it would have like flown more smoothly in the normal river of discourse. Whereas this mm. is just, no one saw this coming. <laughs> Except Jim Mersey, maybe. That moment where Jim Mersey was canonized for saying one thing about Dan Snyder. I would like to devalue the discourse about that moment because we knew, we knew who Jim Mersey was. Right. We, we knew him. And I, and I think you can take that 
you know, as you say, a statement that was in the moment helpful and was correct um, and value it and also say like, this guy's not a hero. None of these, none of the, no NFL owner is a hero. I just remember a, a headline, Jim Ursay's week of badassery. Okay. <laughs> really? No, well, no owner, like had, no NFL character. owner had a week of badassery. Ever. He's like so easy to make into this sort of weird folk hero, right? Because he goes around in his band and he's like, it's, it's just, yeah, there's a real danger in anointing in anointing any one of these guys as, as the, the savior who's to come to rescue us all. Because then they'll go hire Jeff Saturday. <laughs> Speaking of Dan Snyder, here's oh a basic NFL observer take that I want you to uh, you know, say, yes, it's right or no, I'm completely wrong. It seems to me that the media, in the case of Dan Snyder and the Commanders, succeeded to some extent in holding a largely unaccountable figure, that is the NFL owner or Dan Snyder in particular, somewhat accountable and that all those pieces we read from the Washington Post from ESPN got us at least halfway down the road to where Dan Snyder has to sell the commanders. Is that fair? Do you think I want it to be? And I think if we say that it got us halfway down the road, then I think that that's fair. I don't know that we're in this position if Dan Snyder was um, a contributor to the overall pie. The Washington franchise is, you know, the NFL doesn't have lost leaders. That's not how this works. But if it had one, (laughs) it's those guys. And if he were pulling his weight, if that team, which I am told, I, I do not recall, but I am told used to be like a crown jewel franchise, if they had the political pull to be able to get a new stadium deal done when in theory they have three separate municipalities available to like pit against each other. If they in a division that's supposed to be the like big media market money-making division where by the way, the other three teams made the playoffs this year. um, If they were able to do that stuff, I'm not sure that, Dan Snyder being held to account in the press would be enough. But I do think that within that context, it has made a difference. So halfway down the road seems spot on to me. That makes total sense. And that is so depressing. Yeah. That all the revelations. He doesn't seem very nice. Would have come to not if he'd gotten a stadium deal. God, do you think of all the things we know that NFL owners and the league will look at revelations about their brethren and go, well, that's bad, but that doesn't affect, you know, my position on him continuing to be an NFL owner. Do you think the thing about the private eyes was one of, or the most damaging thing for Dan Snyder within the league? You know, I don't know. Cause I thought, you know what I thought was going to be the big thing was when, um, it was, uh, reported. And this was part of what, Congress got up up in arms about for a moment there was that they were skimming money off the top. I thought that we were going to find out that like the thing that really did it was that if there was real evidence that, you know, Dan Snyder was pocketing a hundred K here and a hundred K there, that even though that is not even pocket change to these guys, that that is what they care about. And that was going to be the line that you do not cross. As far as I can tell, that story came and went. I have not mm-hmm. heard about it since. So that doesn't seem like it is possible that this was sort of like a, a, a Tetris thing, right? Where you take a little bit out and you take a little bit out and then eventually the, the whole thing falls over. That's not Tetris. That's Jenga. Um, <laughs> just gonna move <laughs> one on. One of those towers made of blocks. Um, I normally have one coffee in the morning, Brian. I've had two today. I don't know. We'll just, you know, <laughs> let that be what it is. Uh that maybe I, I feel the same way about the hiring investigators thing. Um, it seems like the type of thing that could do it. On the other hand, I I just don't know. I really, I really do come back to the fact that that stadium is terrible. It's a Ugh, it's an injury worst. risk. Ramparts are falling down and stuff like that. They can't get it done. It doesn't, they don't sell their tickets. 
they the media rights deals are what they are. So it's again, there's no such thing as a loss leader in the NFL, but but they are not pulling their weight. And I think that that is what has mattered more than anything else. All right. Topic number three on my list for you. Bill safety, DeMar Hamlin, of course, went into cardiac arrest on the field back on January 2nd. There was a lot said in the days afterwards about football and us watching football and us, you know, worshiping football while we were awaiting word on his condition and his prognosis. Where are you on everything that was said about DeMar Hamlin in the aftermath as we sit here three weeks later? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I don't totally know. I, I think it feels when I stop and think about it, it it feels even though there were a lot of things that were amazing to see, all of the donations that piled into his charity, the way that you could tell how that locker room felt about getting to to hear from him and see him again. Um, I have some really good friends who cover that team. It, it seems like, you know, the 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 top line experience of going through this has just been sort of horrible and draining and terrifying. There are some experiences it seems like people there have had getting to see him again that that are really wonderful, relatively speaking. <laughs> I do when I stop and think about it, like I, we move on really fast. Mm-hmm. When that happened, like you're sitting there watching Monday night football. And like, I just remember sitting on my couch being like, we're waiting to find out if somebody's alive. Like that's, that's really strange. And it's strange, even though it's, to be honest, something that I've thought about, like, and wondered, would something like this ever happen during the course of, you know, my lifetime of watching football, my career covering it? I have certainly had that thought process of, I like to be really blunt about it. I wonder if someone will ever die on the field while I cover this sport, because that is the nature of an incredibly brutal game. And it's very odd that now it's it's almost a month later and the Bills are out of the playoffs. I'm going to turn my TV on on Sunday and, and go through the whole championship round. It's going to be really exciting. I don't know how much I'm going to think about it. Like, I don't know how much unless I wrote myself a note and said, reflect on this situation. Like, I, I don't think they're going to talk about it very much on the broadcasts. I don't think it's going to be. It's just not. It, we just move on so quickly. and. That's that's fine in some ways. It's not the Bills aren't in the championship round. In some ways, like life has to go on and we can hold multiple thoughts in our our minds at once. I do really hope, I don't know that I have a lot of optimism that this will be the case. I do really hope that people will remember how that felt in the moment the next time there's a labor dispute, because that's the only time it's really gonna like have potential consequence for other players, right? It's like they get into these situations. And I heard Dominique Foxworth um, talk about this a lot, just reminding, bringing up that when there are labor disputes, most fans side with the owners. Most fans side, side with, with management. And that's weird. It's a weird thing. It doesn't happen in most industries. Most, you know, you want to stick up for the little guy. And for some reason our brains go very quickly to what these millionaires want more money. And, and so I don't know, I think I would really be, I guess, encouraged about the state of how people process what they see during a football game. If we could hold the the memory of wondering if that guy was going to live or die in our minds long enough to remember it when, you know, the fact that, in this case, when it's high profile, the NFL is going to do whatever they need to do so that um, he's okay and he gets the support and he gets the resources that he needs because everybody's watching. But he would not have had a lot of vested benefits if it weren't for, you know, special circumstances, right? Like he he wasn't at the point where he would get, nobody gets lifetime health insurance, right? But like he had not played long enough where absent special circumstance, he would get the full vested veteran set of post-playing career benefits. So that is my soapbox. I don't know. I, I The real answer to your question is I don't know how to feel. Um, and it's strange to be able to turn the page, even though I don't totally know what the other option is. It's so well said. Um, 
And I love what you say about just remembering that moment and trying to all of us, you know, both of us in the media and then fans at home, just trying to put yourself back in the space we were on that Monday night. Because the moving on happened. I mean, I remember walking through an airport, you know, on Wednesday, two days later, day and a half later, and looking up the TV and it was like ESPN on where will the, how will the championship, the playoff seedings happen now? You know, like that was a talk show segment, you know, and I remember looking right. at the website that day and it being like the way too early 2023 mock draft. You know, it was the moving on was happening instantaneously. And again, that's the way this business works. And I understand we're part of it and certainly and all that kind of stuff. But um, that ability for all of us to put ourselves back in that moment, that is that is exactly what we need to do um, from time to time, at least if if we can manage it. I've been very angsty about football this year just because I think it felt like the year started with all we talked about was Deshaun Watson and the year ended with somebody facing a life or death situation on the field. The thing that has come up for me more and more is is trying to sort of and this is not a justification for or maybe it is, you know, maybe this is how I justify my own involvement in, in this sport and perpetuating its popularity or whatever. It is a reflection of, you know, I, th- I think often like I will think of the NFL as this like bad actor and it's not doing the right things and it's perpetuating a lot of exploiting players and doing all this bad stuff. I don't think that's wrong. It is very easy to think of it as like, this is this is what the NFL does. This is what the NFL is. It is also sort of what the world does. It like It is a reflection of, you know, a massive lowercase c conservative corporation, which is uh, the type of entity that that runs almost everything that we do and interact with in the world. But it's much more public facing than than the average one or even something like Amazon. Right. Like we don't sort of think about we don't think about Amazon's values as often as we think about the NFL's values. And I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know what the takeaway from that is, but. I guess mine is that you can you you know, this is for people in media. There are opportunities in these horrible moments where you can try to just nudge something like set the framework for how something's covered or something's talked about a milla, 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 millimeter in, in some direction. And it's really dissatisfying because it just seems like it's painfully slow in getting people's minds to change or getting people to, you know, side with players in a labor dispute or something. And maybe that doesn't happen the next time it comes around, but like if, if you can shove something, just even the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest bit in the right direction, it does matter because there aren't that many slivers of the universe with as broad reach as, as the NFL. And I think that contributes to why it feels so painfully slow and unresponsive and immune to consequence. But when it even just a little bit helps, I, or maybe it doesn't and nothing matters. And we're all, you know, I, I don't know. I go back and forth, but I'm with you. I'm totally with you. And the point about it's like, it's the NFL, but it's also us. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. On a very different note, I want to ask you about Tom Brady, whom you used to cover day to day back in your Boston Globe days. I was watching his press conference after the Bucks lost to the Cowboys, and he ended it by thanking the beat writers in Tampa from the podium. Have you ever been thanked from the podium by a player in your days covering football? Yeah. Yeah, especially at the end of a season, you get a little bit of like, thank you for, you know, the pa- Patriots players would actually do it a lot because it, it would sometimes be a little bit of a mea culpa, like, sorry for all the times I kind of had to be a jerk this year. Uh, <laughs> the season would end, they'd be like, I, you guys have a hard job and we appreciate it and blah, 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 blah. And then you're, you know, it's fine. Everybody's having a good time. Um, so, but yeah, once a, a few times. I do think, I think when, Julian Edelman retired. He had a really sort of heartfelt thank you, which was interesting because to be very frank, I found him very difficult to cover and not always pleasant to deal with, Mm -hmm. um, which is not, to be very clear, that is not a one-to-one reflection on what someone is like. People just handle having a 
bajillion microphones in their face in very different ways. But it's happened a few times. Where are you on the question of whether Tom Brady will be calling games for Fox for $37 million a year starting next season? I don't really think he will be. That's mostly, though, because you've intimated that to me, Brian. You're you're the expert here that that might not happen. <laughs> yeah. There's two ways, right? There's Tom Brady's playing for the Raiders or what, who, who, or whomever. Yeah. And then there's just Tom Brady has other life plans. Yeah. Well, so I, I just, when we talk about the the football piece of it, I feel like I have more um, more formed thoughts. I think he will keep playing. I think he's going to come back. So I guess in that sense, he will not be calling games for Fox because he would still be playing. Whether like what Tom Brady's future is is at Fox, I think is fascinating. I think the revelation that has been Greg Olson is, is a funny little wrinkle in that. Um, Tom Brady is is really fantastic at a lot of things. I've listened to his podcast, which makes it hard for me to think of him being an effective broadcaster, mm-hmm. uh, which even though, you know, I don't want to be s- silly here, right? Because he's Tom Brady and he's much more famous than Greg Olson. And I think Fox, um, if they're going to pay him that much money, it seems like they've pretty much made it clear that he would be on the A-team. If he's not good and everybody loves Greg Olson, that's interesting. <laughs> like that's a that's a funny little dynamic they might have going there. But I, I think he's going to play another year. So I guess they can at least kick the can down the road. Yeah. And it, and it may not matter. I mean, here's the thing about Greg Olson. I, I totally agree. I think Greg Olson has turned into a fantastic announcer. He is also an announcer that is very, very um, much speaking to people that you and I know on Twitter, yeah. you know, like he is our friend's favorite football announcer. He's your, your, your favorite film nerds, favorite broadcaster. He absolutely. Um, so I wonder, you know, when we talk about Tom Brady being one of the most famous people on the planet, you know, there is a certain sure. Fox is worried about people like us. And then they're just worried about everybody because football's audience is everybody. This was also spelled out pretty clearly for Greg Olson. Like, Hey, you can have this job. You get to call a Super Bowl, which is, by the way, awesome. That's yeah, a tiny good. number of people ever have called a Super Bowl on TV, and he'll be really good at it. Um, and it's also diff- a little bit different than like the 49ers quarterback situation. I mean, there's there's a job for Greg Olson at Fox where he will be working every week and calling playoff games uh, right. into the second round of the playoffs, probably. I don't know what their schedule's like next year, but like, it's it's cool, right? It's not like two five stars, you know, signing with one college. Like, well, one guy's going to play and one guy's going to transfer. Well, no, no, they can they can both announce. That'd be cool. And I, and I wonder how much people even really know, like how many people are t- are tuned into this is the A team, this is the B team. How, how many people in that set of not the people that are tweeting about football stuff five times a day, but the broader audience. I, I don't know how much that, and when I say, I don't know, I really mean, I don't know. I don't mean that, that I think it doesn't, I don't know how much that penetrates people's consciousness. It's hard for me to think that it would. Um, not a ton, not a ton. The only I think thing is just that Tom Brady, like the flip side of Tom Brady being super, super, super famous is that if he face plants at this, <laughs> he's super, super famous. And He's also someone who historically people have enjoyed not liking, mm-hmm. which is not something he deals with particularly well. So I, it doesn't help someone in that situation if there is like golden boy on the B team who, you know, Greg Olson's not a star, but Greg Olson, like Greg Olson's got a, a whole head of golden fluffy hair like the more people know him i think they will like him and i think that is true of of the film nerds i also think it's true of like suburban moms or whoever we're talking about um so i don't know it would be a good soap opera it's hard for me to imagine a tom brady complete face plant just because he'll work hard at it you know I, i don't know what face plant even means does face plant mean drew Brees? (laughs) It's <laughs> basically yeah. me like I, I just cannot yeah, speak on television. I have nothing to say during a football game, so it's hard to imagine just the complete face plant. But um, also on um, indecipherable Patriots-related stories, are you enjoying the 
media's attempt to figure out who Bill Belichick's assistant coaches are going to be next year? It is like, is it is the right reference here the Twilight Zone or is it Groundhog Day? I think it's Groundhog Day. I'm two for two with this. Um, <laughs> we've done this like five years in a row, it feels like. It, congratulations to Bill O'Brien. That seems to make a lot of sense. Um, it, Patriots Palace intrigue. I don't even really, I'm sort of past the point of caring what the specifics of it are. I do think it's interesting that, you know, there's this piece in the Boston Herald the other day about um, everything that went wrong with the offense this year and how much the players didn't like it. Uh, the thing that was interesting to me is that a lot of the the ire seems to be directed at Joe Judge and not at Matt Patricia, um, which I felt like I learned something from that, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, it's always fun to get a little behind-the-scenes glimpse there. The thing that it, like I keep thinking about is... And look, I'm I'm not really in the business of rising to the defense of Joe judge and Matt Patricia. But we started the year with it seeming like those two were in those positions in part because Bill Belichick, like really wanted to help his guys out. I think we can say pretty clearly it did not help. Like the reputations of Bill, Bill O'Brien, Joe judge and Matt Patricia were not doing great when they went into those roles, which was part of all the, you know, hoopla about, why those decisions were made. They're worse now. They're in worse spots now than they were a, a year ago in terms of trying to, you know, both of those guys have had unsuccessful tenures as head coaches, but presumably they would eventually like to try to get another shot at doing that. The needle did not move in a positive direction. So I, I just, I wonder, um, I wonder how many rounds of this that organization can withstand before it's sort of like, hey, it's been a while since you won a Super Bowl and it seems like everybody's fighting all the time. And uh, what are we, the Jets here? (laughs) Last question for you. 10 days from now, you and I are going to be sitting in the wilds of Radio Row. I'm thrilled. Phoenix, getting ready for the Super Bowl. Now, Radio Row and all the stuff that happens before the Super Bowl, that is my Super Bowl. That the game is <laughs> secondary. That's that's why I'm there. Um, for an actual football reporter like yourself, what's the most useful thing you get out of that five days before the big game? So probably the access with teams is the most meaningful. Like you do get a certain amount of um it could be really good when 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 I was covering the Patriots and, and they were there the stuff that I would find most useful was when you could just go find not a, a top five, most recognizable people on the team, but someone just below that level or even some of the assistant coaches. And during those availabilities, they would just sit at a table and they're so bored and no one's talking to them and you can go sit down and you can have a longer, more in-depth conversation with someone in that type of setting. than you will have the entire rest of the year. Mm. And, and that's great. It's a little harder to do when you're not a beat writer because you just don't, you know, you're you're going up to someone that you don't have much background with necessarily, but it's still totally possible. So that stuff's good. There is a lot of it, it for pods and stuff, it's great to just have everybody sort of in the same radio row stew and you can get guests and you can catch up with people and and that's awesome. It's not like the combine in the same way where it's sort of a a sourcing meet people for drinks, get information. Like, um, you can get a lot of, you can get a lot in a short period of time because everybody is forced to be in the same room. I don't know that those people are always in the best mindset to like really be reflective and, and think about outside of the box topics and stuff because they have to play in the Super Bowl in a week, but it's just fun. It's just got good energy. It's got, you know, silly stuff happens. Absolutely. All right, Nora Princiati, ringer.com, ringer NFL show, soon to be Radio Row in suburban Phoenix, or actually downtown Phoenix, I think. Nora, thanks for coming on the press box. See you in in Phoenix. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, Jason Gaze here, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of I Wouldn't Do That If I Were Me. Jason, I regret to inform you that the sports media funeral gong has sounded once again. <laughs> Yesterday, we lost Billy Packer. Yeah. Who called the final four of the NCAA tournament on TV 34 times in a row, a run that stretched from 1975 to 2008. As a CBS announcer, Billy taught a generation never to just say Duke, but always to say Duke University. <laughs> Where do we start with Billy Packer? Well, I'm afraid this is one of those episodes, Brian, where you and I like, you know, sit down at the campfire and have to tell everybody about Billy Packer a little bit because Billy Packer has been off the air for close to 15 years now. Um, he retired from CBS. They parted ways, I believe, after the 2008 season. But you're right. He had a seismic impact upon the sport when it was a totally different beast. The way that we think about college basketball has radically changed. Uh, this thing, this event, these Final Fours may not have been Super Bowl in scale, but they were awfully close. They were completely bigger things than they are today. Um, and when you think about that, Billy Packer called the biggest one of them all, which of course was Magic, Bird, Indiana State, Michigan State, 1979, a ratings record that I believe has not been eclipsed. Um, you know, his impact is vast. You're absolutely right. And you almost have to start in the old man way with, you never understand how big this guy was. Yeah. Or the sport, frankly. Or the sport. So so a couple of things, right? TV was bigger. Network TV sure. was bigger. The yep. sport was bigger yep. for reasons we can get into in a minute, both good and bad. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I feel Billy because he did college basketball, which was not the sport that had eight A-list national pundits attached to it, especially during that era. Sure. He was bigger. I mean, I was trying to think of comps today. Like, who would you tell somebody of 2023 who's like Billy Packer? And the only one I could come up with is like Kirk Herbstreet in college football in the sense that he's sure. a master of a sport with 100 teams. Though Kirk, I think, cares a little bit more about whether people like him than Billy ever did. Oh, definitely. I mean, in some ways, uh, if you were to make a Billy Packer today, it would be kind of a combination of Herb Street and Feinbaum. It would be those there two things put together. You know, you have Feinbaum, of course, as kind of the, you know, the 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 commentator on sort of the cultural side of football and what it all means. And then, of course, you know, being in the booth for the biggest games of them all. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, like, you know, I hate to be the person saying, like, it'll never be this way again, but I feel pretty confident it will never be this way again. <laughs> For for some good reasons and and bad, re I mean, like there are some benefits to this, and I'm sure we'll get into that too. Absolutely, um, I think one thing I've always remember about him is just the way he looked on television. You know, no offense <laughs> to Billy, but he was not your typical TV dreamboat. No, even when he was standing next to your TV dreamboat in Jim Nance, his play by play partner for many years, he was that's right, way shorter than Nance, who is a tall gentleman. Yes, uh, he was bald. Yes. 
had white hair for a lot of the time growing out of the side of his head, kind of looked yes. more like English professor than television announcer. Yes. Yes. You'd see him with the glasses on sometimes on broadcast row. And yet, and yet Billy Packer was a jock. He was an ex-jock. He was a Wake Forest basketball player who famously, you know, turned away Duke to go to play for the Demon Deacons. And, uh, you know, he he does fit that mold, at least. Absolutely. An ex-jock who then became, when he was an announcer, not somebody just describing the action, but a real fire-breathing pundit of college basketball. Yeah. Like, again, I think that's something that's very hard. When you say Paul Feinbaum, that's definitely the right path here. Because in that day and age, Billy had takes not just on what was happening on the floor, but who got the number one seed in the tournament. Right. Which then would make that coach mad at Billy, and there would be this whole media back and forth. Right. And sort of most controversially, and I think the thing that really sent people over the edge was that Billy had a really strong opinion about who and who should not be in this thing. Um, He sort of regarded himself as somewhat of a gatekeeper of college basketball, and he sort of infamously had very strong opinions in opposition to the inclusion of a lot of mid-majors. You know, he always felt that like, you know, the fifth or sixth seed from a, you know, major conference, like a Big Ten or certainly the ACC, which was his his main thing, um, deserved to be there more than some random school uh, to him, some random school. And, And of course, over time, we have realized, and I think television has realized that when you get those incredible you know, small schools, the outsiders, the Cinderella's. That's the magic of March Madness to this day. I mean, that's the thing that I think drives this. I don't think anyone is like, oh, you know, it'd be great. Let's see the number one and number two seed, you know, take this all the way to the end. Totally. And as you've admitted them and the sport has changed, they've become the big boys. Yeah, sure. Right. Gonzaga's become the big boys. That's, that's, That's interesting. Yes. I think when I look back on him, what is so jarring to me was Billy Packer, to the extent anyone on TV could claim this, did not seem to want to be liked. Yes. He he didn't worry about that. I think Tim McCarver had that a little bit at the end, too, when he was on Fox doing the World Series his last couple of years on television. But, you know, the ex-coach archetype on TV, it's it's Bill Raftery. It's. Sure. It's Al McGuire. They're wild and crazy guys, right? Yeah, sure. We're just talking college basketball among friends. Packer was, I'm going to give you my opinion. I read this quote from him. Look, I'm abrasive, he told the New York Times. I've always pushed the edge, but the positions I've taken are not off the top of my head. That was, again, not a guy hosting a radio show from Charlotte. That was the guy calling the Final Four <laughs> on CBS. Right. right. But think, this is important, being a crank on television was a far more sustainable career in 1979 than it is today. When you consider the amount of places that the public can react to your presence in real time, to your criticisms, to your what they like about you, what they dislike about you. Billy Packer could call a game, walk out the door, walk down the street, not looking at a phone. He's not uh, looking at social media. Maybe the biggest pushback he's going to get are people like literally analog calling up CBS to complain. <laughs> and then like Rudy Mertzke's column. And yeah. that's kind of it. Um, it's a different environment today, of course. And I think there's so much more emphasis placed upon likability and and candidly sort of self-policing to appear likable. And, and, you know, we can discuss whether or not that's been a positive development. I would argue probably not. I don't think so either. And, and it's funny because there was a moment when Billy kind of crept into the internet age. He leaves CBS in 2008. Tim McCarver really crept into the internet age. He really crept into the rivals.com age. And Mm. I know you're a big rivals guy, but like, it's like, the, he he was the bane of message boards. I mean, he really was like if he, he, he was the Darth Vader of college basketball message boards, I believe. Totally. And people were like, I, I'm mad at this guy. He is he is giving opinions on TV about my favorite team or a team I like or a team I hate. And this right. is enraging me. And I totally agree with you. I think at the time I was probably, you know eating the cheese in the mousetrap and mad and, and whatever else. But now when everybody is, Oh, Jim, Oh, Jim, what a pass. Right. I miss it. I miss yeah, yeah. that. 
No, 100%. And also just think of how we're conditioned nowadays now. You know, how many of us have watched, you know, a World Series game that's eight to nothing in the second inning or a football game that's, you know, probably a bad example because there have been so many crazy comebacks in football this year. But like, you know, a football game that's clearly one sided and just sort of laughed at the announcer saying like, all it takes, Brian, all it takes is a pair of back to back grand slams and they're right back in this thing. (laughs) Um, He was the guy who... You know, again, I keep using the word infamous, but I mean, this was sort of like a, a beloved kind of infamy. I think he pronounced a couple of games pretty much over in the first 10 minutes of Final Fours, which was really frowned upon. I mean, there's no producer in the truck who's saying like, you know what, you'd be good, be good if you can declare this thing over early in the first half. There was a moment when CBS would do the selection show every year where they would finally get the brackets. And again, this is a very analog way compared to the way we consume it now. And in my memory, they would go to Billy, who would have these takes about it, and it would kind of be the only take <laughs> you yes. would get. Right, right, right. Now you can, of course, you can take shop. If you don't like a take, you can just go across the street and find somebody who's more in line with your mind and, and, and take shop that way. I mean, he is sort of the perfect synthesis of incredible timing. I mean, to cover college basketball, to be an analyst for college basketball at this time, this is like... You're the DJ during the British invasion, okay? This is like, if you're ever going to be doing this, this is the time to do it. But matched to that, a guy that didn't give an S about public opinion and was going to say what he felt. And, you know, of course, you know, he had incredible biases and, and, and blind spots and made numerous mistakes and there are multiple controversies around things that he said on the air. But he did sort of seize that platform. You know, it's like, when people get jobs of this nature, you know, it's like you're going to be calling these big games. You kind of want to see them grab it and ring it for everything that it's worth. And he certainly did that for a long time. Absolutely. One thing that's interesting is CBS during the 80s had this very curious way of looking at announcing where they thought that the color analyst should be the star of the broadcast in every sport. Yeah. The play-by-play partner should be a pass-first point guard. Yes. There to call the action, but really to set up the color analyst to become the big star. So if you think of the play-by-play guys, it's Jack Buck, it's Nance, right? Yes. Um, And what's interesting, so you had these color analysts, McCarver we mentioned on baseball, Packer on college basketball, John Madden on the NFL, who were set up not just to be like, famous people calling games, but to have a pulpit to, to be like empowered and enabled to be the big opinion guy. Like that was a structural part of their job that was beyond just television or their personal whims. Now Madden interpreted that to be, you know, whimsical and funny, but he would also have his moments where he would come down with the hammer. Tim McCarver, we know his vision of baseball in addition to all the things he would explain about baseball and and the game and and Billy the same way, right? Like, and that, that was very much his interpretation of the job, but that was also what the network's interpretation of the job circa the eighties was. Right. And I think also you can kind of go back to patient zero, who is of course, Cosell, who was the person who, you know, really, really (laughs) seized upon the idea that everyone needed to know what he thought at all times, no matter how informed or not informed he was, and really just soaked in the celebrity of that. He was not somebody who liked the backlash. He's a little different than Packer. I don't think he, he was sensitive about it, oddly enough. Yeah. But D- does anybody really, like the backlash, really? Well, I mean, I think that some people are genuine about like not engaging with it. I find it very hard to believe this day and age that anybody can be isolated from it or insulated and just, you know, shut it all out. I think everybody's quite aware of what the public opinion is of their performance on television. But I mean, let me just go back to one quick other thing about, you know, your point about what CBS was like in this era. Another part of this, and I think it's important when we talk about television and sports, because television sports has been really elevated on a pedestal over the last generation. When you think about where it was, Um, in terms of an authority. In the 70s and 80s, it was a haircut and a jock to be glib. Very fair. And the authorities 
were the columnists, they were the sports writers, they were the people who like, you know, the Jim Murrays and the Dan Jenkinses and the people who wrote about this, they were the people who were the intellects and the and the, and the and the you know critics and sort of the the strongest sort of voices within the framework of the sport. The TV people were kind of like the lighthearted promoters of whatever was happening at the time. Somewhere along the way, and you can definitely tie it to cable news, I mean cable sports, you know, it became so it proliferated and everywhere, and you started to develop people who are incredibly gifted about coming on the air and giving their opinion about everything. And now that's you know omnipresent. But I think that shift happened. And it's not, you know, obviously I speak, say this as a columnist, regretfully, that era is long gone. You know, columnists are not looked upon as the sort of main authority on sporting events. We're kind of this, um, you know, we're over in the corner making, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm making, old fashions. <laughs> <laughs> I do, And I do feel, again, I'm, we're relying on memory here a little bit, but I do feel that handover was, was sort of pretty obviously happening in the 80s. Newspaper yeah, columnists yeah. were still going strong. Yeah. But like you know, John Madden was so big that it wasn't just John Madden be funny. It was what oh, of is, course. who are John Madden's favorite players? Oh, wait, that's a television show, right? He is shape trying to shape the way you think about football and certainly Packer on a college that you could see it happening, right? Yes. Just because yes. sports on TV was coming so big. Those guys were getting richer, right? Salaries are going up big yes. time during that age. When I next treat myself to a little YouTube holiday, it's going to be to watch Billy Packer call Final Fours with Brent Musburger. Yeah. Let's right. talk about the exception to the rule where the personality guy is the analyst rather than the play-by-play. -play. I mean, you talk about two huge personalities who called big games together. Sure. I want to I want to relive that because I don't remember that <laughs> clearly enough. I mean, if anybody takes the opportunity, I know there's been a lot of stuff circulating on social media about, you know. Packer clips, good ones, bad ones, silly ones, annoying ones. Um, you know, it really is time travel because you have a completely different sport and its structure and the way that teams were, you know, put together. Teams became famous, coaches became famous, players played, you know, four seasons, you know, in a way that they would never in a zillion years do today. Of course, you know, we've had all kinds of change to the sport, the most significant being the lack of permanence in it that athletes come and go and rightfully so. I mean, I think they should be entirely entitled to go off and do, I don't, I don't even like the age limit or the age minimum for the NBA. Um, but it just created celebrity in a way that college basketball cannot achieve in this environment. And I just can't imagine them ever going back to that world ever. So let's follow that trail. He was yeah. the voice of, and in some ways the guardian of the promoter of, a particular vision of quote unquote amateur athletics. Fair to say? Yes. And, and, and in many ways, a very regrettable version of amateur athletics because it's intertwined with worker exploitation, for lack of a better way of putting it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but there's no doubt that in terms of sort of cultivating audience, in terms of building drama, in terms of just making household names out of you know, people who are fresh out of high school and, 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 you know, we're going to be in our lives for the next three to four years wearing a college jersey. Nothing was like it. Absolutely. But it's like when you and I look back, I'm like, man, college basketball was big. College basketball was, was fun in this different way than it is today. I mean, so, I hear this from readers all the time. They'll say like, oh, you know, I really love sports when like the guys had to have second jobs in the summer. Like, <laughs> you're like that yeah. sounds terrible. <laughs> doesn't sound great for them. Yeah. It's you like, know? You, know, you know who was making a fortune during those years? <laughs> somebody. CBS. Yes. No, somebody <laughs> Billy Packer was. himself. Jim right. Nance. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They no, were I doing don't fine. Think Right. No, I I don't think it was great that Johnny Unitas had to host at a restaurant in the off season. <laughs> it's terrible. I know. And and you know, and again, that was that was inextricable from this. Like there's no yes. there's no way that you can look at this. I mean, hell, we could talk about the 80s NFL didn't have free agency. Yes. But yes. when we look back fondly and we look back at the television coverage of such eras, Part of the story. Absolute I mean, he's first. the other thing that's sort of happening in college basketball at the time that he jumps at is it's the end of Wooden, right? You're coming at, at, at the tail end of the great Bruin dynasties. And 
that will never come back. And there's, you know, I, w- I don't want to say a period of volatility because you still have these like blue blood schools that are just perennial, you know, champions or, or, or favorites. But there's a lot more volatility than there was before. And I think that makes the sport a lot more interesting. I think it's really important that in 1979, not only do you have this incredible showdown with Magic and Larry, who everybody, again, these were household names, Magic and Larry. This is pre-Laker, pre-Celtics. These guys were super famous, playing in the most important college basketball game. But then they make the leap, and they're awesome there. And they're awesome in uh, you know professional basketball at a time when professional basketball is starting to take off as a TV sport. I mean, we've heard it repeated again and again. They save the NBA. Now, whether or not that's valid, it's a whole different conversation. But championship games were shown on replay. This was not a live television sport. They transformed the sport holistically. And then it sort of made... This is a a weak analogy, but I'm going to go with it. I mean, it really did turn college basketball into this kind of a American idol situation where, you know, this was the great stage of what was coming next. And you don't have to look too far to see whether it was Patrick Ewing, Akeem Olajuwon, you know, Allen Iverson, a number of players who are coming in through the ranks who are just, you know, going to be incredibly famous very quickly. And then we're going to go on to big, great things. I mean, it's funny to think about watching Georgetown, North Carolina, and Jordan, of course, hits the great shot, I believe, as a freshman or is he a sophomore at the time? I think he's a freshman. He's kind of a side player. I mean, he's an incredible talent. Everybody knows it. But it's like, oh, Michael Jordan, because there's also all there's James Worthy out there. There's other Patrick Ewing is, you know, the player of the year. You know, it, it was remarkable how college basketball players got to be fully formed characters over a period of time. Now, again, I don't think it's fair to go back to that. But it definitely just made it a different composition to cover. And if we want to tick off one more regrettable cultural current from that age, especially versus the NBA, right? It would be like, oh, here is the purity, right? Here is, of course, here is amateurism. NBA, ooh, that's, you know, people were saying at the time, that's drugs, right? That's, that's the spoils of fame and things like that, right? Uh, uh, yes, 100%. And like college basketball has still vestiges of it you know, this really noxious cult of coach, you know, the idea that these coaches are just kind of like these heroic figures who last decades and are not to be questioned and create culture and are not operators and are in it for the kids and are in it for the school. They're always and I teaching, think, you know, Jason. Did you look at it? He's down <laughs> right. 20 he's and not he's a still coach, teaching right. on the sidelines. Right, right, right. I mean, you know, Look how much Bobby Knight was romanticized. An incredible college basketball coach in terms of the results. But like Bobby Knight in 2022, could you imagine? (laughs) It was barely imaginable in the the early 2000s. I should say 2023. There's a senior moment for me. Oh, that's okay. Can we uh, (laughs) dig a little bit into Billy Packer's Wikipedia page here before we go? Oh, yes. An incredible Wikipedia page. Great eccentricities. Yeah, let's get in there. Um. One of my favorite stories of all time is 1998. And I read about this in Larry Stewart, who was the LA Times of Sports Media Writers memoir. Billy Packer had seen a couple of pieces on 60 Minutes about college basketball. Mm, and it yes. being 60 Minutes, they were about scandals in college basketball. Now, it should be noted for people here that 60 Minutes is airing on the same <laughs> network that Billy Packer works for. <laughs> this is what Billy Packer says of his pals in the news division at CBS. 60 Minutes is a cancer in our organization, <laughs> and you can quote me on that. I don't care how much money they bring in. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an important part of it, the money part of it, because let's not forget, not only was CBS... As you know, a, a, a sister program in CBS, the number one show on television for decades by far. <laughs> outrated Dallas, outrated Dynasty. I mean, it was an incredible, like, profit generating juggernaut. And the it was the sacred cow of sacred cows. And that kind of speaks to what Billy Packer was all about. Oh my God. He's going on like lacing into Leslie Stahl and. All kinds of things. And the LA Times wonderfully called Mike Wallace in his office for comment about Billy Packer's remarks. And and Wallace said, although I've never met him, I'm sure Billy Packer is a fine fellow. Yes. I mean, in fairness, all, (laughs) all this stuff, 
is, you know, looks different, you know, through the passage of time. You know, to revisit what counted as a scandal in, prof- in, in college basketball in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s even um, really looks ridiculous. You know, are we really policing, like, you know, visits of players, you know, whether or not they were given free meals, phone calls, you know, even bags of cash in small amounts. I mean, they really look kind of silly when you, when everybody is quite aware of that this is a multi-billion dollar industry. And as we stand here in 2023, Brian, this is a $1 billion a year television contract. One billion for March Madness alone. So the notion that we're going to somehow come after people for you know free shoes or it's just absurd. He had a Cosellian comment about Allen Iverson in 1996. Brutal, brutal. Yeah. He had an incident with uh, two students, two female students at the aforementioned Duke University. Yep. Uh, it was a credential incident. Getting even deeper into his Wikipedia page, you were sending me this before the show began today. He was involved in the OJ investigation yes. as an amateur. <laughs> yes. Yes. He, I believe, uh, hired a psychic to somehow search for the murder weapon, I believe. Mm-hmm. Do I have that correct? I don't you, have the wiki do, in front of me. You do have that correct. Um, he was a polymath of polymaths. He, Brian, late in his life, uh, he was in the vaping business. <laughs> <laughs> not where uh, I thought just, you were going to go. Okay. Uh, he got into vape. I mean, not as a vapor, but as an investor in vaping. Um, he became a super fan of MMA, cage fighting. Um, Unbelievable. You know, the guy, you, you couldn't have made him up. Would he have been uh, the Joe Rogan style figure of cage fighting if he'd just come along at a slightly different time? <laughs> I can see him doing that. Honestly, I think he would have been really good at that. Talk about something where you need to be opinionated. Well, isn't the main part of that job is you have to kind of put your arms back upon your two other fellow analysts <laughs> yeah, and go, right. whoa, look completely shocked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember, but he had some highlights I saw today where he was like laughing when a shot would go in at the buzzer because it was so crazy. High-fiving and, players. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, he might've been able to pull that off. He also, when he leaves CBS in 2008, um, said he had a big project. This was to the New York Times and quote, it involves websites and interactive games. Mm. So Billy really was ahead of his time. Yeah. Uh, he also, by the way, of that murder weapon that he was looking for with a psychic in the OJ case. This is also from the Times. Packer said his psychic said he found the knife and the police wanted nothing to do with him. <laughs> I can already see the athletic uh, story here, right? The college football analyst, <laughs> the knife and the psychic. Billy Packer's <laughs> attempt to solve the OJ murders. Can you imagine like... Piece. You're down in the precinct in LA and somebody comes, hey, Curtis, I got a tip. Uh, the murder weapon's been found. Uh, who's it from? Uh, Billy Packer. He's <laughs> hired a psychic. Guy from, from CBS? God. Um, I do miss him. I feel like if he were on, had been on television the last five years, I would have probably had 50 tweets about him arguing with you know, his pronouncements about a player or his feelings about the sport or everything. I know I would have, but as we said earlier, in retrospect, I miss Packer in particular, and I miss the kind of announcer he was, especially. 100%. I do feel like end of an era is the most overused and factually incorrect statement that people do when they, you know, honor uh, the recently deceased, but Billy Packer's career, his impact, the sport that he covered. I mean, we have, that is gone. Never to return. There will be some really interesting developments in college basketball as NIL increases, as, you know, different opportunities increase for athletes, whether it's, you know, going straight to the G League and so on. But we will no longer, we will not get back to where it once was. If I could throw one more cliche on your woodpile there was synonymous with the sport he covered. Yeah. Yeah. It's Billy Packer synonymous with college basketball. Yeah. I mean, you know, 
there is part of you that you cannot help but feel nostalgic for what those games were. I feel like even with college football, which is now eclipsed college basketball in terms of that championship moment with its own version of March Madness now, um, it, 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 you know, it, they just kind of riveted you. You were It was destination television, and those ratings are, you know, unachievable i don't even know if that's a word but they are unachievable now brian totally totally and we've seen you know look cbs has had a bunch of guys in that spot it's not it's not the not same them. job right yeah. it's not the same sport it's not the same job you know not no, the same team no offense yeah. to bill raftery no offense yeah. to onions and hip hip but and, and which is not to say that there, there aren't some incredible things that happen i mean like it, all of us were incredibly uh I mean, I don't know if incredibly riveted is the right way of putting it, but like the theater of Mike Krzyzewski's farewell last year, especially, you know, doom at the hands of North Carolina was remarkable. I mean, that was great, great television. Zion's bursting onto the scene with the Blue Devils a couple seasons ago, as big as it got. Um, But I just think those moments are fewer and farther between. Huge thanks to Nora Princiati for popping on earlier. He is Jason Gay. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. Next week, we have the second installment of our One Perfect Story series. A few weeks ago, we had Stephen Roderick to come on, talk about Lindsay Lohan and Paul Schrader. This one's going to be about a very famous sporting person of the era we're talking about. Of course, back Monday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then.